Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 9th, 2021, in a sunny San Francisco in Northern California. The sun isn't really out, though, metaphorically in America. America, as you all know, both Americans and outsiders, remains caught, trapped, imprisoned in four simultaneous crises. The first is, of course, COVID. Uh, headlines today are about children's cases spiking. Delta, we're still not entirely sure where this COVID crisis has been going. It's been going on since uh, March of last year in 2020. Uh, on top of the COVID crisis, the crisis of the pandemic, we have a political crisis. American democracy is clearly broken, or it uh, it seems to be uh, on the brink of being broken. There's a, a California recall election going on right now that makes a mockery of uh, democracy in my state. Meanwhile, in Texas, um, the governor there has signed a uh, uh, a new bill which fundamentally undermines, I think, uh, democracy in that state. Um, and as the BBC says, uh, the crisis of democracy in Texas is also a crisis of race and of minority rights. As we all know, the efforts in Texas uh, to change the law about voting are an attack on uh, the rights of minorities to vote. That's the third crisis, the crisis uh, of minorities um, and of discrimination and race in this country. It's not a new crisis, but it's as real today in September 2021 as it was in September or March 2020, and for that matter, in September or March of 1920. Um, lots, of, um, lots of talk about this. The Guardian noting that um, Biden, the current president of the United States, promised to make racial justice, the heart of his agenda, but it doesn't seem as if very much is changing on that front. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter stuff continues to reverberate around the media, lots of demonstrations and some violence in Saratoga Springs and in the schools of uh, South Bend, Indiana. Uh, the fourth crisis is the economic crisis that goes together with all this. Uh, today, millions uh, of people in the United States lost their jobless benefits as a result of the changes in the law about unemployment. 800,000 New Yorkers, uh, according to the New York Times, lost them today. And, and the crisis is made more complicated by the fact that there aren't enough skilled workers in this country. So even if... Uh, even if the jobs existed, uh, there are no people for those jobs. So you have rising unemployment and more and more jobs being um, unfilled. These four crises aren't new. Uh, my guest today on the show is Keith Boykin. He's a very distinguished, well-known CNN commentator, political activist and thinker. He has a new book out, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America, and he begins this book in March 2020, um, noting these four simultaneous crises of COVID, the crisis of democracy, the crisis of race and racism, and the economic crisis. And I'm thrilled that Keith is with us today from his 
uh, apartment in uh, New York City. Keith, uh, welcome. Has anything changed since March 2020 when you talk about waking up to these four crises um, in America when you were in that same apartment? Uh, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. And I don't think that our fundamental system has changed in the past year and a half, uh, but we have seen some progress in working our way out of at least a couple of those crises. Obviously, the health crisis, uh, in some respects, it has expanded because the Delta variant, as we all know, but on the other hand, we do have vaccines now, and the president of the United States is making an effort even now to push for more Americans to be vaccinated and requiring that to happen. Uh, the economic crisis has uh, improved a bit since March of 2020, although, as you pointed out, we still have millions of, Amer of Americans without jobs, millions of people who have lost their unemployment benefits, and millions of people who are now in danger of being evicted from their homes or apartments because of the expiration of the eviction ban. The crisis of race, however, that has not changed. Uh, we still see incident after incident of police brutality, of uh, black lives not mattering, essentially, uh, both from the public uh, official perspective and from private vigilantes. And we have seen the same problems with the crisis, the fourth crisis, the crisis of democracy. This still persists. Uh, even though Donald Trump has left office, we had an insurrection in the United States Capitol just this year. We have, as you mentioned, state legislative efforts in three dozen states in the United States who are trying to make it harder for people to vote because they were so upset with the outcome of the election, they decided the only way they could preserve their power is to make it more difficult for new people to actually access the ballot. So we are in a, in a predicament, and I think people are, uh, would, the, the people would be wise to pay attention to the persistence of these crises and know that they don't end because of the end of a term of a single president. These are problems that transcend any individual or presidency. Yeah, I mean, we uh, regular viewers of this show know that this is a crisis that's been going on for at least a hundred, maybe two or three hundred years. We've had shows about the the, the, the Tulsa uh, race riots, um, uh, shows about race riots in Arkansas in 1917 from J. Chester Johnson's dam damaged heritage. So, uh, I think most Americans know that these aren't new. Um, Keith, is race? in these four crises above them? Is it the, the meta crisis that makes sense of the other crises or is <clears throat> the issue of race? I mean, you have a particular interest in it, uh, obviously as an African-American and in your political and intellectual career. But to understand America, do we have to understand this endless ongoing racial crisis? I believe we do, Andrew. Uh, if you look at the health crisis, for example, uh, from the very beginning, People of color, particularly African-Americans, were disproportionately represented among the people who were dying from COVID or hospitalized from COVID. And over the course of time, the cumulative impact has still shown disparate, a disparate impact uh, on African-Americans. This is because of the lingering legacy of health disparities in America's health care system. Uh, so there is a racial component to that. If you look at the economic crisis, the, the unemployment numbers were just released recently from the Department of Labor for the month of August, and the black unemployment rate 
has still remained much higher than the white unemployment rate. And the sad truth is that this has been the case for 50 years, actually more than 50 years, that's as long as the Labor Department has been keeping those statistics. The black unemployment rate has never been as low as the white unemployment rate. That, that again, is because of the systemic racism, the persistent, uh, the lingering effects of the persistent, uh, persistent uh, of slavery and segregation, the badges of slavery and segregation. Uh, if you look again at the, 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 the democracy crisis, this is all about race. The reason why we had an insurrection, the reason why they're trying to, over, to try to, to make it more difficult to vote in various states, the reason why they tried to rig the census effectively last year was because they wanted to prevent this changing of America, this darkening of America. And there was a new census report that came out just recently that indicated that the white population in America is dwindling, in part because people who have multiracial identities aren't identifying as white anymore, uh, but in part because the Latino population is exploding, the Asian American population is growing. And so there is a there is an existential fear among some white Americans that the, the the sense of white supremacy and white privilege that is that the country was founded on is finally starting to end and this is affecting everything else that's going on in our country uh, you mentioned one of the great books about um, race in America uh, the Swedish economist Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem and Modern Democracy, which was written in, in 1944. You're obviously very familiar with the book. It's a classic. Has anything changed since 1944, Keith? <laughs> well, definitely things have changed since 1944. We had three major civil rights acts that were passed uh, in the end of segregation. The, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed segregation, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which theoretically made it easier for African-Americans to vote, uh, and the, House, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. But since that time, we really haven't seen any major, major structural changes uh, to reduce the racial disparities uh, between the various groups. And the irony about what happened in the 1960s and where we are today is that the Voting Rights Act was sort of the crown jewel of the civil rights legacy. This was the one piece of legislation that was designed to sort of to, uh, to abolish all forms of racial discrimination because black people would be able to participate in the franchise in an equal way with white people. But now we are in a we are facing a new crisis because. The Voting Rights Act was essentially gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court in an infamous decision called Shelby County v. Holder. Uh, and even though the Voting Rights Act had been reauthorized by a republic, by a republic signed by a Republican president and reauthorized by a bipartisan legislature in a near unanimous vote in 2006, the current Republican uh leadership in the House and the Senate of the United States do not want to reauthorize it. They're fighting against it. This is something that has been, this has been sort of the, the bipartisan consensus to support voting rights in this country for, for decades. But now that is no longer a consensus and that's a sad state of affairs. So in some respects, uh, because so much has changed, it's sad that we are still facing these same issues 50 years later or even 70 years after Gunnar Madal's uh, tome about America and race relations. The, the subtitle of, of your excellent book, Race Against Time, is The Politics of a Darkening America. You're a graduate of Harvard Law School. 
of Dartmouth College. You've worked with Clinton. You're you seem a, a deeply political person, and in some ways, it's a political history of race over the last seventy years. Really, since uh, not so much since Merdell, but certainly since uh, Nixon uh, and Reagan. You talk quite a lot about Lee Atwater in the book. Mm-hmm. Lee Atwater is a notorious political strategist who I don't know if he corrupted the system or simply confirmed the corruption of the system. Tell me uh, mm-hmm. Atwater's role in in, 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 in in making an already sick system even more rotten. Yeah, I, I don't know if he corrupted the system either or if he just took advantage of what was already a corrupt system, but he found a way to to weaponize racial grievance politics, white grievance politics, in a way that uh, no one had done as effectively before him. Without was, using the N-word, right? I mean, that was his great contribution to Western civilization. Well, and you're right. In fact, he did a, a, an interview, a famous interview. I think it was with The Atlantic. Um, and it was recorded and um, you can find it on the internet. I can't remember exactly uh, what the, when, the, when the date was, the source was, but he actually says in an interview, I listened to it a couple of times, he says, you can't use the N-word anymore. Uh, he, he mentions sort of the, the progression, the history of how uh, racial grievance evolved. So in the 50s and 60s, you could use the N-word and say N-word, N-word, N-word. Uh, but then you get to the 70s and it's no longer politically acceptable to do that. So you start talking about busing and, and states' rights. And you get to the 80s and you start talking about taxes and things like that. And the level of, of abstraction becomes far more distant, much more attenuated from the from the real basis of the of the threat. Uh, and everybody understands what you're saying. That's what we call a dog whistle politics because the, the people who are supposed to get it, get it. Everybody understands what you're saying, but you're not saying that. Uh, and this has sort of been the, 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 the genius, the evil genius, if you will, of the, the, the Republican Party strategy post Reagan. Now, what Lee Atwater did though in 1988 is he also ran the campaign for George H.W. Bush. Uh, who was the president succeeding uh, Ronald Reagan. And yeah, George- and you don't give uh, George H.W. Bush a, much of a review in the book, do you? You <laughs> think that he is as guilty in some ways, as guilty as Nixon and Reagan in, in corrupting the racial politics of this country. You're right. Um, I, and I, I don't think he deserves much of a positive review. And, I, you know, there's a tendency to sort of look back in history and think, well, he wasn't that bad compared to maybe his son or compared to Donald Trump. But he was responsible for initiating the process of weaponizing racial politics. The whole Willie Horton campaign ad that was used in 1988 was a blatantly, overtly racist attack on African-Americans using this this image of this black man who was uh, alleged, allegedly a murderer and a rapist uh, as, an, as sort of the symbol of what you would get if you voted for the Democratic candidate Michael Dukakis in 1988. Uh, and then afterwards, once he was in the White House, George H.W. Bush led his own war on drugs and even set up uh, a young man in Washington, D.C., uh, basically entrapped him, had people from the, the federal government lure him to Lafayette Park so they could sell him some illegal drugs and the president could hold it up in the context of a speech and say that this was 
captured right across the street from the White House, which is a complete facade because no one actually does drugs across or they don't actually sell drugs across from the White House because it's such a heavily policed area. Even the person who was arrested didn't even know where the White House was. So it, it's, it's a sign of just how cynical that the politics of the party was at that time. They were willing to basically entrap a young black man, send him to prison just because they wanted to make a political point about about race and drugs in America. Uh, and, and his son, you don't give his son, George W. Bush, much of a, a better review on this. Um, he was equally, you suggest, guilty of, of turning a blind eye to the... The, the racist undertones of his political campaigning. Yeah, this is true. And, you know, the, the two Bushes are interesting bookends to the Clinton presidency in the middle. But the first Bush was known for what he called a thousand points of light and uh, compassionate conservatism. Um, and then the second, actually it was the second Bush who was the, the compassionate conservatism. Uh, but they were both in some ways associated with it. Um, and the first Bush also talked about a kinder, gentler nation. So what the Bushes did, and they did so well, was they used the rhetoric of civility in a way that other Republicans before and since have not used as effectively. But they didn't follow up that rhetoric with legislation or substance. And that was the big, that's the big critique I have about both of them, that they were talking the talk, but they weren't quote unquote walking the walk. The second Bush was of course at the helm of the federal government at the same time when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans and devastated an entire American city, virtually wiped it off the map uh, for uh, all intents and purposes because uh, even though it still exists, obviously, but hundreds of thousands of people were forced out of their homes. The, the city was covered with water and the president did virtually nothing. He was stuck at his ranch in Crawford, Texas, refusing even to, to take uh, acknowledge what was going on. And then when he finally did, some days later, he flew over in Air Force One and looked out the window and gave people the impression that he was some sort of imperial king looking down at his peasants. Uh, it, it just... it. it it was not the most effective use of the federal government. And the idea that we would allow an American city essentially to drown and the president would do virtually nothing about it was unprecedented in in our uh, in my lifetime to see something like that happen. Uh, so I, I think it's important to understand, though, and, I, and you've asked me about the two Bushes. So yeah, I mean, we're coming on, of course, to the Democrats. You don't okay. excuse them. Um, yeah. You work for Bill Clinton. You were one of his advisors. You were fresh out of law school. Um, but Clinton and even Obama you're in some ways critical of. So, so tell me about your critique or analysis of, um, of, 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 of Democratic presidents um, in, in terms of racial politics and the politics of a darkening America, as you put it. Well, I, I look at it from sort of a historical perspective. We're, we're in the year 2021. If you look back 100 years ago in 1921, the, the overwhelming majority of black people were voting for the Republican Party at that time. They had been since they were allowed to vote, basically since the end of the Civil War, since the voting or since the the, uh, the 15th Amendment was uh, was passed in 1870. Uh, but they had been basically voting for the Republican Party because of two things. One, because 
Abraham Lincoln was a Republican who freed the slaves, quote unquote, with the Emancipation Proclamation. And secondly, because the Republican Party was responsible for the period of Reconstruction, the civil rights era that took place immediately after the Civil War. But that ended in 1877. And from 1877, for decades on, the Republican Party did virtually nothing to help Black people uh, in state after state who wanted legislation to protect them from lynching, who wanted the, to actually exercise the right to vote while the Southern states were taking away the, those rights, who wanted equal access to uh, housing and accommodations, but couldn't get it. Um, and so Black people, after 60 years of supporting the Republican Party, were fed up. And they were ready to leave, and they did. By the 1930s, the African-American vote swung dramatically away from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. I think we're at a point now, not that the, the vote is going to swing from the Democratic Party back to the Republican Party, but I think we're at a point now where the Democrats have been receiving the votes from the African-American community for some 50, 60 years now. Uh, and the Democratic Party needs to deliver as well. If it doesn't, it doesn't mean that people, as I said, are going to move to the Republican Party, but they may find some other option. Maybe they'll find another party. Maybe they, maybe people will decide not to vote at all. And we're in a, a very discouraging situation even today, even before I get to the question of Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. We're in a discouraging situation today where we have a Democrat in the White House. We have Democrats who control the House of Representatives, Democrats who control the United States Senate. And we can't pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We can't pass the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. We can't pass um, uh, basic legislation uh, just to, to help people out uh, in this country and help black people out in this country. Even before we get into the conversation of talking about making amends or reparations. We can't even get simple legislation passed. So I think that the black people are starting to feel, um, not all, but some black people are starting to feel frustrated by the lack of uh, focus on these issues. And that's what we saw with Obama and with, with Clinton. Clearly, Obama and Clinton were head and shoulders better than their Republican opponents. No doubt about it. There's never been a debate about that. But the problem is, and this has been a persistent problem, the Democrats haven't always prioritized the issues of race. And we talked about that uh, earlier um, in terms of The Guardian's critique of, uh, of Joe Biden. Um, Biden, of course, has, to put it lightly, a rather controversial record uh, is a New York Times headline about Biden and Anita Hill. You, you touch on Biden in the book. I've, have you been disappointed with his with his scorecard so far on race? Is he does he have time to address this, or is he just so uh, having to address COVID and every other you know from Afghanistan to COVID to unemployment that he really realistically can't address this stuff? Well, um, that's a really good question, Andrew, and I, I'm hesitant to use the word disappointed only because I was not a Biden supporter, so I didn't really expect. Who were you supporting? Who was your horse on this one? I didn't really have a candidate, uh, to be honest. I kind of uh, liked Kamala Harris, but I wasn't 100 percent sold on that either. So I I didn't really have a, a strong favorite in the primary. Um, I liked Elizabeth Warren for some issues as well, but um, I just I, I wasn't a Biden supporter. And I, I, I've had issues with Biden going back to the 1980s when I worked on the Dukakis for president campaign and uh, 
he left that campaign in, in a scandal. Uh, and then in the early 1990s, 1991, he was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, during the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings. And of course, he was also one of the leaders in, involved in passing the crime bill in the 1990s. So I've had some issues with Joe Biden. I think that um, Barack Obama choosing him as his vice president helped to salvage uh, Joe Biden's reputation, at least in some respects. In some ways, I think Joe Biden has surprised me and done more than I expected. The, the, the infrastructure proposal is not something I, I am particularly enthused about. I think it's important to have that, but I'm, I'm impressed to a certain extent that Biden was willing to go big on the initial proposal for COVID relief. Um, and I'm impressed uh, on the fact that he has sort of followed through on his commitment in terms of, of financial financial help for the American people. On the other hand, I haven't seen much of a focus on issues of race. Uh, I haven't seen it from the Justice Department until recently when the, when the Attorney General announced that they were uh, filing lawsuits against some of the state states that were enacting these, these uh, regressive voter restriction laws. Uh, but I haven't seen a sense of urgency from this administration about it. So you this. seem to, yeah, you, you share, shall we say, maybe not disappointment, but frustration. So Keith, your book is called Race Against Time. Uh, we've suggested that these problems are new. They've been ongoing. But you're also suggesting that we don't have a lot of time to address them. So let's talk about some solutions. You you had a, I was intrigued with your, with your comment about Charles Blow's mm -hmm. idea, the, the New York Times columnist and, 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 and writer, that we should, or, or, or African, Ameris, um, African Americans should consider another mi great migration back to the South to fight uh, politically um, what's happening in, in that region. Is that a realistic strategy, Keith? Well, for, first of all, that's Charles Blow's strategy. It's not my strategy. I want to but you were, you were, you you talked about it, and I was, sure. I, I actually didn't yeah. know about it. And I, I, so I was introduced to that idea from your book, and I right. thought it was interesting that you, you, you thought there was, there might be something in it. Well, I, I definitely think it's possible, and I, I think it's doable. Uh, I, I just think it, it requires a sort of a change of consciousness, you know. Jesse Jackson has been talking about this concept for decades, as I recall, going back to the 1980s or early 90s, where he talked about the, the black vote in a number of Southern states was large enough, the people who didn't vote was large enough to turn the election on, on a number of different, in a number of different examples. Um, and what Charles Blow is advocating is if black people migrate back to the South, where many of us came from in the first place, if we migrate back to the South and exercise this political power in this sort of regional block, we can actually have our own senators and governors and hold them accountable and get them to, to, do, uh, to do things for us. Uh, we see this right now in Georgia, the fact that Joe Biden won the state of Georgia in the presidential election and that Georgia now has two Democratic senators, uh, something that would have been unlikely to even imagine just a, a couple of years ago. Uh, and so I think there is definitely, definitely potential in doing this. I, on the other hand, um, as a New Yorker, am not willing to relocate to Georgia or uh, the South quite yet. Uh, but I think that Charles Blow's proposal is actually more targeted for younger people anyway, encouraging them to go there and, and start their lives and their families and their careers down there. So I think from a, uh, from 
a, a workability perspective, it definitely could happen. Um, and from a, a practical perspective of whether people will actually do it, not sure. But I think it's an intriguing idea, a provocative idea, and I applaud Charles for doing for for saying that. I just actually yesterday sent him a copy of my book, so we'll see what he. Oh, good. Doing. Well, we'll have to get him on the show too. Um, Keith, as I said, you are a, a, a graduate of, of Harvard Law School, um, and I'm curious your view on two fundamental issues. We've had Alex Vitale on the show arguing for the end of policing, and we also had uh, Jonathan Rapping. I'm sure you're familiar with his Gideon's Promise um, public defender movement to transform criminal justice. To what extent is the heart of the problem both a police issue and a, and, a, and a prison and law courts issue. I think that's a that's an important part of the issue. And from a as a speaking as a lawyer, a non-practicing lawyer myself, I, I can understand why people would sort of look for solutions within uh, the legal system to uh, sort of fix the problem. Um, I, one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Paul Butler, has another book called Chokehold. Uh, where he, t- he also talks about some of the same issues, including jury nullification, um, as well as um, uh, the police abolition and, and uh, prison abolition. And, and so does Angela Davis, and she writes about that in her book, Are Prisons Obsolete? So there, there's been a lot of talk about these issues for quite some time. I'm of the belief that our system is fundamentally flawed and broken. Uh, and that it you mean the criminal be, justice system? The criminal justice system, and it, it can't be reformed or fixed with uh, band aids. We have to start over, I think. And I think the fundamental well, there's two fundamental problems. One is, of course, the issue of race, um, and that the system is infused with race from the beginning to the end. And until we deal with that issue, everything else is going to fall apart. Um, but the second issue is that. I think if we're going to really redo our, our public, our, our criminal justice system, we have to focus more on public safety and less on law enforcement, which means I think most people would want to be free from crime instead of being instead of having to punish someone after a crime takes place. And so the question is, how do we actually prevent crime, which is something we don't talk about a lot. What we talk about instead is how do we punish people after they've committed the crime? But how do we prevent crime? We know how to do that. We know that if you give people jobs, you give people health care, you give people good schools and quality education, you give them homes and housing and make sure they have homes and housing, you make sure that they have clean environments and, and, and healthy neighborhoods, those things contribute to reduction in crime. But instead of investing in the basic necessities that people need in order to make their lives more comfortable and livable, we decide we're going to invest in the, in, the, in the back end on punishing them when they do something wrong. And so I suggest that we need to sort of reallocate our resources and focus more on the prevention side, actually spending money on helping young people, helping kids, helping them to get through school, helping them to get summer jobs, helping them to make sure they have health care when they go to school, have school lunches when they go to school, helping to make sure that they, they breathe clean air. Those things actually help to reduce crime. And so if you look at where, where crime actually takes place, you look at the neighborhoods where it's most concentrated, there is a clear correlation between poverty and crime. And it's not because poor people or lower income people are more inclined to commit crime. It's because they live in situations where their, their predicament is much more dire and more difficult. Keith, we had um, Heather McGee, the author of The Some of Us on the show last year. 
she's written a, a wonderful book. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with her work on how white working class Americans all too often vote against their own interests because of race and racism. Do you agree with McGee? And if that's the case, then how do we get to, to, how do we get Kansas to stop voting for Kansas? Hmm. How do we how do we make white working class people who sh who have so many of the same issues and problems uh, as 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 black and brown working class Americans? How do we get them all on the same page politically? Do we need a new party, a new language of politics? Well, I mean, Heather is Heather makes a good point in in her argument. And I know George Lakoff talks about the same thing in his book. Yeah, I know Berkeley, uh, but the Berkeley linguist just up the road. Right, exactly. And um, I, I, I don't entirely agree, but it's a it's a nuanced disagreement. Uh, and that is, I don't necessarily believe that white Americans in these sort of uh, middle uh, middle American middle middle income communities or lower income communities are voting against their own interest. Now, from a purely economic perspective, you could say you could do it, run the numbers, and say they clearly are. But from uh, some sort of um, uh, more esoteric sense of uh, of, of thinking of things, I, I don't think that they realize that because one of my former professors, Derek Bell, I write, I talk about him in in my book. Yeah, that, the, the, quite a controversial Harvard Law professor, right? <laughs> Very controversial now, especially because of the critical race theory discussion. But but he, he talks about the property right in whiteness. He wrote a famous Harvard Law Review article we talked about, the property right in whiteness, which suggests to me that a lot of white Americans have concluded that even if they are economically not where they hope to be, there is some property rights, some economic value in maintaining white supremacy and maintaining a status above the status of black and brown people. And that is what they are holding on to. And that is what, for example, Donald Trump offered them. And so it's hard to sort of quantify what the value of something like, like that is, but it is something. It is what people, I think, uh, believe that they are voting for. So yes, they may vote against their purely economic interest, but from a larger perspective, uh, they're actually, they actually think, I think many of them do, that they are not voting against the economic interest because they're keeping down the black and brown people who they perceive are taking away their jobs and opportunities. Uh, Keith, one of the concluding chapters of your book is called Atonement, and we know what that's all about. Uh, Carol Anderson, the Emory University scholars, written a lot about that. She's an old friend of mine. And, and she's often said to me, she's been on the show, that America needs to experience its own, shall we put it, denazification cultural moment. They need to take responsibility for the past. Do you agree with Carol on that? Is that what atonement is essentially all about? Um, yes. And by the way, uh, Carol Anderson is the author. One of my oh, favorite Carol. Books. Carol. I hope she's favorite. watching. If she isn't, she needs to watch. One it's a great book, books, White Rage. White Rage. And of course, she has a new book out now called The Second. Yeah, um, we had her on the show talking about that one as well. We haven't even got on to gun rights. That would be the subject of another show, Keith. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I, I do think that there's merit to this whole idea of, of I don't know if I, if, if I would go through the process of calling it denazification, but if, if you just think about where we are right now in 2021, we had an election less, less than a year ago and 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump in spite of all the chaos and 
catastrophe and the failure to manage the coronavirus pandemic, uh, the, the corruption, and the blatantly overt racism of his administration. So it, it seems to me that- How many of those 74 million do you think were voting with racism either at the front or the back of their minds? See, I don't know. And I don't know that's even a knowable thing. But I do believe that if they weren't racist, that they were racist adjacent in the sense that they were willing to sublimate their interest in fighting racism, if they had any interest in doing that, to some sort of greater interest that they think of something as much more important than that. And that's just as problematic. If somebody doesn't doesn't want to stand up and fight racism, doesn't want to challenge it, then that can be even more devastating for people. so I, I don't want to get into saying that everybody was racist or not. I don't really know how to say that, but you're still supporting somebody who is clearly enabling racist legislation, racist actions. Um, I don't think that we can move forward as a country until we go through a process of atonement. And that's ultimately what that chapter in the book is all about, that we can't just pretend like the past didn't happen and sweep it under the rug and claim that everyone's equal and move forward. We have to actually go back and study our history, know our history, and explain what happened, how it still impacts people in 2021, and why some people are still benefiting from that history even today. So once we do that, and once people actually make an effort at atonement, then we can start to move forward and heal and make progress. But I agree with Carol Anderson that you can't, just think about what South Africa did after after apartheid, they didn't just move forward and say, we're, we're finished with apartheid. They had a whole truth and reconciliation process to make sure that the people who did things wrong were held accountable and that the public, everyone knew what, what went wrong. We're in this country, we're still fighting over whether we're going to honor Confederate war generals from 155 years ago, from a war that they fought against our country for slavery uh, it, it just makes no sense that those people who, who defend that can consider themselves consider themselves to be patriots in America in the 21st century. Well, Keith, uh, your, your call for a more historical, balanced um, view of all this uh, is, of course, right. And, and your new book, The Politics uh, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. I mean, you obviously have your own perspective. Um, you're politically on the left, so I wouldn't necessarily call it a balanced book, but it's a very coherent, convincing one. Congratulations on the book. We didn't even get to talk about your mother or her cooking. Maybe we'll do that on another show. I know you're in your apartment in New York in these strange times where we're still not sure what whether to go out or not. As I said, everyone needs to read your new book, Race Against Time. It's out this month. What else should people be reading, though, Keith? Good question. I'm glad you asked. I have a couple of other suggestions here. Um, one of my favorite books, well, he has a whole bunch of books out now, but one of my favorite books of all time is Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. I don't know if you can see yeah, that. Yeah, you mentioned Kendi a lot in the book, actually. This is this is an amazing book. It, the subtitle is A Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And I remember uh, picking this up once at the bookstore and thinking, how can, he, how can he write the definitive history of racist ideas? How can anybody write that book? It's 500 and some odd pages. Uh, and it's an impressive piece of scholarship. And it goes back to the 13th century and traces a history of racism and how race was invented. And it's an amazing book. Uh, novels. This is my favorite novel now. Um, it's called The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. I read it 
earlier this year, it came out earlier this year. I read it when I was finishing up my book and I needed something to do in, in between the hours and hours of work. And uh, it's an amazing uh, novel, partly because it's a novel that I always wanted to write myself and uh, never got a, got around to doing it. I never would have done it justice in the way that he did, but uh, I totally recommend it. And last but not least, uh, this is sort of an unusual book, but it's a beautiful book called Queer Love in Color by Jamal Jordan. And um, I uh, picked up this book a few months ago and it's it's a photo book, basically. There's photos and stories yeah. of different couples. And uh, I just ran into him last week um, um, here in New York City and I told him how much I appreciated this book. and. It's so, as, as a black gay man, it's so affirming to see uh, people of color uh, in, in published and in, in print and just to see our images and, and, and not in some sort of tragic and traumatic way. So those are some of the books that I love and would love other people to check out as well. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, your new book, as I said, uh, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America is just out. Congratulations on the book. I'm thrilled that you're better. The book began when you had COVID. Now you've recovered. The book began in Mexico City, ends in New York City. Congratulations. Keep well. And I'd love to have you back on the show. There's lots more to talk about this issue. It's ongoing, unfortunately, and it's not going to end soon. So, Keith, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.